so much for being here to talk with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah. Um, so I noticed that like on your website, you have um, listed a whole bunch of your different favorite pieces that you've written. Yes, um, that hasn't been updated in a while, but yes, that list does exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say is your current like number one favorite piece that you've written out of all these? Wow, my current favorite number one piece that I have written. You know, I have a great fondness for um, for the piece that I wrote about Cinderella a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, just because it involved a ton of research and it was really interesting, and it was an opportunity to dig into a bunch of. Um, a bunch of like alternate versions of things. I watched a whole bunch of movies. I just loved the fact that it was so um, elaborate and I got to do so much in that piece. A lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, you're turning things around on a somewhat shorter um, timetable. You know, a lot of the reviews that I do just get turned around pretty quickly. Um, just because sometimes there's not a lot of time between, you know, they'll give you a chance to see a screener, for example, of a TV show, but, you know, a short time before it, before it airs. Not always, but sometimes. Um, so I liked the amount of time that I got to, to spend digging into the, the, the Cinderella kind of, um, story for that piece. Mm -hmm. So, um, are there any of your pieces that you've written that like you like don't exactly feel like 100% about, like, did you have any pieces that like you regret writing or are you like enjoying all the pieces you've written? Um, I am sure that I do. Um, I'm sure that there are pieces that I, I am certain that there are pieces that I would write, uh, differently, um, now versus then, um, I can't, nothing comes to mind right away, but I think, you know, I I think anytime you write a lot, if you don't ever have the feeling of like, Oh, you know, I might've gone after, I might've gone about that differently. Oh, I'll tell you one. Um, and it wasn't really a piece. It was just a very quick blog post and it was quite a number of years ago. Um, and it was when, you know, my writing for NPR had a slightly different style. It was a little more kind of quick blog post type of stuff, but I wrote a post that was, um, meant to be sympathetic about the fact that every time they took pictures of Kristen Stewart on the red carpet, she looked really unhappy. (laughs) And it was sort of meant to be like funny and like she here she is looking miserable again. And I feel bad for her. She looks miserable. But somebody much years later, and I don't know how they found it or how they they came to to come across it, but they said, um, you know, this is really just part of kind of policing how women look and the faces that they make when they're in public. And it's just the kind of thing that is not the sort of attention that anybody really wants. And I went back and I looked at the post and I was like, you know what? Accurate. Correct. Agree. Didn't wouldn't write it now. Shouldn't have written it then. Um, And I think the only thing you can do is is be really honest with yourself about, um, you know, not just not just berating yourself in in public to try to get people to forgive you, but to really genuinely think about like what happened when I was writing that. Like what what Mm -hmm. is the you know, what's the error? And the error in that case is just thinking that you can kind of rob things of context. Um, because, you know, to me, yes, of course it was, it was sympathetic. It was, I wasn't trying to put her down. It was like, but it was, it was meant to be funny. I mean, I was sort of making fun of the way she looked in the picture unavoidably. Right. And so it's kind of thinking, you know, context is you, you don't have the opportunity to opt out of context. So I sort of tried to figure out what was the specific mistake in, in writing that that way. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I came up with. So yeah, there, I'm certain that I have written things I would take back. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you know you wanted to be a writer? Like, was there a moment in your life 
when you like knew like wow this is what I want to do with my life like when you were young or was it when you got to your adulthood when you were like yeah I really enjoy writing I always wanted to be a writer I think I mean I think I I think I always it's just been a matter over the course of my life of being really interested in different kinds of writing. Um, you know, when I was really little, I wrote stories when I was, you know, in college and in law school, I got very into like analytical kind of more academic type of writing, but it was always writing. And then, um, you know, when I was about 30, I started to get involved in like, you know, TV recapping and stuff like that, which, which kind of led to the sort of cultural criticism that I do now. I don't know that I can point to any one moment except to just say, you know, I, I, I think I was the only person who was surprised when I ultimately, um, you know, wound up becoming kind of professionally writing full time. Um, I think everybody else in my life probably knew that was the the outcome that was going to happen. Um, so yeah, I, I, I always wanted to write. What would you say is um, one of the most memorable moments that you've had in your career so far? So um, one of the things that I've gotten to do that I haven't gotten to do very much recently, just because um, live events have not been happening, but I've gotten to um, do some live events interviewing people who in some cases I, I really admire, or, you know, known their work for a long time. And I got to interview Judy Bloom, who was a, you know, probably my first favorite writer when I was young, you know, wrote, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, and a bunch of other books that I yeah. loved. Um, and it was just as good as I thought it would be. <laughs> it was just as good as I hoped it would be. Um, and she was incredibly kind and it was really, um, she, she also, you know, said some really wise things to me about setting boundaries and dealing with, with the public, um, mm-hmm. that I've always remembered. And there are times when people say something to you in the course of an interview and you realize it's just a regular, really interesting thing for someone to say to you. And you always kind of go back to it. I always, I always remember those interviews very kindly. And that one in particular, you know, she mentioned that she had because she wrote for kids, um, she would get a lot of mail from kids who would talk about really serious, terrible things that were going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. And she talked about, you know, feeling like, you know, I, I wanted to go and individually help every one of these kids. And it just isn't, you realize at some point, it just isn't possible. And you have to figure out how do I direct people to resources and things like that, while also mm-hmm. not pretending that I'm going to be able to like invite every one of these kids to come live at my house house. And, you know, those kinds of boundaries are super, super important. You know, I have obviously nowhere near the public profile of somebody like that, but um, as soon as you sort of have any kind of public profile, you have to figure out boundaries. And so those kinds of interviews where people just say genuinely super interesting things to, 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 to you, I think those are some of my favorite things that have happened. That's so, cool. <laughs> so has there ever been anything that made you feel discouraged about writing? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I would say every time there is a change in the way, um, digital media in particular works, um, it it can be very discouraging to, to watch how, um, disposably a lot of writing is, is treated as if it is, there's a lot, there are a lot of people who, um, there are a lot of people who have seen their writing kind of vanish um, off the internet, off of various sites that they wrote for. And sometimes it does feel like people just do not 
value it at all. And, and you'll see vast amounts of people's creative work just kind of um, zap or, or see them realize that they are really at the mercy of, of whoever decides or doesn't decide to keep archives online. Um, and so when I see, you know, anytime I see a lot of layoffs in, in media, anytime I see a lot of people get discouraged when I've seen, you know, people who have been sort of harassed off of, off of Twitter or harassed out of writing or kind of, you know, mistreated to the point where they don't really feel comfortable being out in public as much. Those things have always been really discouraging to me. It's rarely been things that have happened to me personally, because I've been very, I've been very lucky, but, you know, looking around and seeing sort of the, the, the wider world of, of what it is like right now to try to get into writing. It's definitely, it's definitely tough and it can be hard to balance the fact that I, I absolutely support people who, who want to get into writing, but it, it's, it's a tough, the tough environment. Uh, how would you uh, navigate those kinds of feelings? Uh, and- that is a great question. You know, there are things that you just, there are things that you can't do a lot about, and there are things that you, that you can. And so to me, the things I can do something about, you know, um, I do try to share and promote and lift up work by the broadest range of writers that I can. I try to find a lot of, you know, interesting and new writers whose work I can support and and promote. We bring a lot of, um, really interesting, fascinating, younger um, culture critics on the podcast to, to speak and be part of our panels. Those kinds of things make me feel better when I feel when I feel discouraged about those kinds of things. All you can really do is share the space and the platform that, that you have. Um, but it's also true that, you know, part of this is just figuring how to deal with existential stressors about the state of the world and the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's always been true. It will always be be true that those things will be out there. And, and so for me, you know, part of that is just general stress management that I have to not sit and obsess on social media and I have to not Mm -hmm. sit and obsess over things I can't control. And I have to, you know, stay in touch with the people that I'm close to kind of regular, you know, regular mental health, um, you know, upkeep is, is really important to dealing with career things as much as, as other things. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any positive factors into digital media or do you think a lot of the time it's a negative factor that takes over the authors or writers? Yeah, I think there are many wonderful things about digital media. It is absolutely true. You know, it, it there used to be a kind of, um, you know, if you wanted to get into cultural criticism or something like that, you really had to start by getting into you know, one of a relatively small number of, of outlets, right? Your local newspaper or a bigger national newspaper or a national magazine, um, like, you know, Entertainment Weekly or TV Guide or whatever. Um, and it is really true that those, you know, that relatively small number of um, entry points made it uh, more difficult for, a, you know, a broad range of people to be involved in criticism. I think the rise of, of blogs and personal podcasts and, you know, Tumblr and TikTok and all those kinds of things, um, they can allow 
a lot more people to, to express what they're trying to express, right? The whole thing about everybody's a critic, it's sort of true. And there's, there are parts of that that are good. The question is then what happens to all of that, you know, that talent that people are, are kind of using, are they able to support themselves? Are they able to get hurt? Are they able to be elevated in the way that they would be elevated if they had found favor with somebody like the New York times or frankly, NPR or something like that? Are they able to get hurt in the same way? So that the positive to me is you can get a lot more people um, involved. The negative is you have to be really attentive to providing good curation and good sharing and all that stuff to make sure that the the people are actually getting a chance to get heard. And you have to you have to support their ability to, um, you know, to feed themselves and work and make money because, you know, it's 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 lovely to want to do things for the passion of what you do. But it, it takes a lot of time to be a, a critic, just like it takes a lot of time to be good at anything. It takes a lot of time to do criticism. And if you're good at it, you deserve to to have that be your job if, if other people are enjoying it. And so, you know, those are the things I think about. So, yeah, there, there definitely is there definitely is is upside. I've found tons of wonderful people, um, you know, through digital content. It's just a matter of, you know, figuring out how to make that that. Uh, work for, for people a little bit better. Um, I wanted to touch on a bit, uh, because you're talking about uh, mental health and how important that is to prioritize and manage. Um, what do you think would be some good advice for people or writers, anyone who, uh, that are dealing with burnout at this part of the moment? Yeah. The tricky thing about dealing with burnout is that everybody does not have access to the same strategies, right? Um, I I recently, and I've been very open about this, I recently was able to take essentially four weeks off from work because I was just mm-hmm. tremendously, tremendously burned out. And it is, it is um, you know, what I want to do with all my heart is tell people like this is a, you know, it is a great strategy to just literally take enough time away that you can stop thinking about your job, your work, your, your obligations, um, to, to, to that, which is what I was really able to do. But the number of people who have access to that strategy is relatively small. So it doesn't necessarily, not necessarily helpful to make that your answer to that question, right? If you say, take several weeks off, I think that's a great strategy if you can do that, but a tremendous Mm -hmm. number of people cannot. Um, I do have a couple of things that are a little bit more, um, a little bit more practical for more people. One of which is step way back from social media, step way, way back. It doesn't mean you have to get off of it. You know, for a lot of people, it's important to how they keep up with the news or it's important to how they promote their work. If that's the case, pop in in the morning, pop in in the evening, um, do not linger on social media. I, I, and look, I'm not a social media, I'm not an anti-social media person. I have loved getting to know people via Twitter and via Instagram and things like that. I have dogs I follow on TikTok who absolutely make my day um, on a regular basis. I am not a, a general skeptic of social media, but if you find that there is a grind to the way that your brain is processing the world, I think for a lot of people, it is worth stepping way, way back and seeing how that makes you feel. Because I genuinely believe that human beings are not designed to poach in everybody else's anxiety all day long, which is one of the things that I find um, about about a, a place like Twitter in particular. Um, you know, when I 
was off Twitter quite a lot during my leave. When I would come back on, my first thought was always, everybody is so mad. And that was not necessarily my experience of Twitter when I was in it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think I kind of stopped noticing that as much. But when I had taken some distance, it was like, everybody is so mad. So I think getting away from that is one thing. And the other thing is to just accept that like some of the really popularly offered strategies for dealing with stress, you know, get some exercise, get good sleep you know, don't drink too much booze, like those kinds of things. The reason why people give that advice so often is that for a lot of people, those things are really helpful. And it's, 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 it can be boring to be like, are you getting enough sleep? Like when people talk about how burned out they are, are you getting enough sleep? Now for some people in order to get enough sleep, they need you know, to, to address other things. I'm a huge proponent of therapy. If that works for you, I'm a huge proponent of, um, you know, for some people, there may be medications that can help depending on what your situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the strategies are not innovative. They're just, you just have to keep going back to people and being like, look, you know, it, sometimes it really helps to go outside and that's boring advice. But sometimes I think a lot of us get, you know, really, um, I don't know, really tied up in, in, mm-hmm. Uh, worry about finding the right strategy. And so it's a, it's a mix of things. I employ a mix of things. What advice would you give to a new graduate trying to get into the publishing field? Um, if you're talking about, so you're talking about like publishing a book or something like yes. that. Okay. Yes. Um, I think, um, So the background for this is I did not finish a novel manuscript until I was um, in my 40s. So um, I think sometimes to finish a project of that length, I'm not saying it will take you into your 40s necessarily, but I think it can be something it takes a while to to really figure out how to do. I think um, reading a lot of novels is extremely helpful in figuring out, you know, there, there are a couple of different things, right? Because to step back for a second, when I started trying to write a novel, I realized there were things that I felt pretty confident about. I was a good writer. I felt like I knew how to write a good sentence. I felt like my writing was pleasurable to read. And that comes from, you know, years and years of writing in lots of different settings, but there were also things specifically about the formatting of a novel and and the, the structuring of a novel that because I hadn't studied it academically and because I hadn't Um, spent that much time kind of examining novels that I I didn't know. Um, I didn't know much about pacing. I didn't know much about point of view. I didn't know much about those sorts of things. I found when I wrote the second one that I, I, I knew much more about that stuff and it came to me much more easily. So first of all, I would say combine like you have to sort of learn to to like your writing and to appreciate your voice, but you also have to learn some basics. And that doesn't mean that you can't break formats and do unusual things. I love novels that are formally experimental, that are different in some way. Um, if you read, um, uh, if you read, you know, there are books that have, that are written in, you know, little tiny chunks is very big right now. Um, it, it doesn't mean you can't break all those rules, but I think as with most things, if you learn the basics of structure and pacing, then, you know, manipulating those things becomes easier. So read a lot, write a lot. Don't be afraid to 
read books that are about how to write a novel. Um, it doesn't mean you have to take it all as absolute gospel, but don't be afraid if you can find a good book that seems to have good recommendations. It sounds like it's written by a credible person. Give it a try. There's there's good advice out there about how to how to structure novels. It is partly work and partly a, a craft that you just have to become good at. Um, in terms of getting a novel published, the for most people, I think the first step in doing that successfully is getting an agent. So I think what you want to do is finish something that you can show to an agent. Um, and, you know, again, this may not happen right out of college and it's perfectly fine if this doesn't happen until, you know, later, but when you're eventually ready and you think you have something that is publishable or that you hope will become publishable, um, you know, you got to get an agent, um, to submit at most places. Um, and you want to make sure that you reach out to an agent and you follow what their submission guidelines are. Cause you don't want to start by, by saying, you know, I'm not going to follow your submission guidelines because my work is so special. That is not typically a way to endear yourself to people. Um, so find agents, they have submission guidelines and sometimes that takes a long time to, to find somebody, but once you find an agent and make sure it's somebody that you really, really trust, who you really think is going to support you. Um, cause that relationship is incredibly important. If you do wind up kind of navigating actual, um, book publishing, the relationship with your agent will protect and, um, and support your, you and your work. Um, so yeah, start there, see what happens. Um, I am a big fan of developing a presence for yourself, even if it's like a personal site where you post some, some kind of short work that you are trying out, that can be a valuable thing to do. Share it with people that, you know, get into a writer's group, take a class, you know, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things you can do. And it, it takes, it takes some people, I think a long time to be ready to, to finish novels, but it, it's, a, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to have done. I'll put it that way. Um, something I thought was very interesting that you had talked about, um, that just kind of really resonated with me because I'm a writing major and I have a music performance minor, um, was you talking about uh, how you were very involved with music. And I was wondering if there's any way that you incorporate that into your writing currently. That's, that's so interesting. I, I know so many people who are kind of cross, I don't know what I would call it, like cross, um, uh, interest, like who have crossing interests in different kinds of mm -hmm. art, um, who are super into literature and books, but also super into music or who are super into music and also super into film. Um, yes. there are a lot of, and for critics, I will say for critics, it's really helpful to be, to be kind of a generalist who, who is passionate mm -hmm. about talking about, for example, movies and television, but also passionate about talking about music or books or something else. Um, I do think for me in my writing, my interest in music, I, I have to believe that there is a relationship between how much I loved, I have always loved music and singing and performing and how much I tend to like dialogue in, in both books and movies. That's very kind of rhythmic and kind of back and forth. I'm a real fan of kind of good rom-com banter and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard for me to believe there's not some connection between like rhythmic, I don't know, some <laughs> rhythmic echo of that. But yeah. yeah, it's it's very common, I think, for creative people to have multiple, you know, multiple fields that they're interested in. And I think it can be really, 
really interesting um, to pursue those things in, in your work. Thank you. Do you think it's better when you're starting out to go big in a big corporation or start small with self-publishing or an independent publisher? It really depends on what you want. There is a, and it depends on what you think your work is like. Um, you know, bigger commercial publishing, like what I do, is appropriate to certain kinds of books and works really well for certain kinds of books. I happen to write love stories um, mostly. And that is something that, you know, is pretty, it, there's a pretty big kind of commercial space that's been carved out for that kind of writing. Um, and, it, it, you know, increasingly, I think there's an effort obviously to diversify, diversify the voices that are in it, but there is a pretty big commercial marketplace that exists for that kind of writing. The same thing goes for mysteries, um, the same thing goes for, uh, certain kinds of, you know, saga type books. You, pr you probably have a sense of whether you're writing a kind of a commercial book. Um, I think there are types of literary fiction in particular that are really well suited to the kind of the fine touch of independent publishers, um, who, you know, in many cases, I, I think you might, you might you might make less money, but you might find that your book is, has more of the life you want it to have. So I think those, those two things, right. Big, more commercial publishing and more independent publishing both absolutely have, um, wonderful applications depending on what your work is as for self-publishing. I'm not super experienced with self-publishing and I, I come to it with a certain skepticism because I don't, I, I want to make sure people are not taken advantage of on platforms like the, you know, the Amazon platform and things like that. There have been back and forth, some concerns about, you know, whether people were, you know, whether they're, they were really going to be compensated appropriately. I don't really know the current status of those, of those um, debates. So I'm not, I don't mean to take a position certainly about that platform in particular, because I haven't used it, but um, you know, self publishing, I think is, is complicated, but for a, a lot of people um, can be a really good way to, to, to work with the caveat that the fact that you're self-publishing doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be just, you write your book, you put it up. That's the end. Um, the people I know who have had the best experiences in self-publishing still use editors. They still use cover artists. They still you know, get the appropriate help that they need to make the book the absolute best book it can be. Because if you think it's hard to stand out as a as a traditionally published book, it's extraordinarily hard to stand out as a self-published book um, because you don't have the marketing muscle of, you know, a, a publisher, stuff like that. So I think with the caveat that it still is a ton of work to, to self-publish. It's not a sort of a... Um, you know, it's not a kind of a, an, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, <clears throat> I think self-publishing based on the people that I know who have done it absolutely has a, has a place in the world. It really all depends on what your resources are and what you want to get out of the experience of publishing a book. So with your recent story that you wrote, Evie Drake, I know it's a fiction book, but did you base any of it off of your real life or is it completely fiction? I would say there are things in the book, that, you know, 
the 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 part of the the part of Maine where I set the book is a part of Maine that I love that I used to visit um, and vacation when I was uh, young, and I it's a it's a place that I have a tremendous amount of affection for. So certainly, the setting comes from you know what has has developed in my own life. Um, you know, Evie has a best friend who's a single parent. My best friend is a single parent. I think I probably was partly interested in writing about single parenting and, and, um, because of the, not just that friend, but, you know, the people that I've known. So there are experiences that, you know, there are experiences that, um, sort of loosely inspire your interest in things without really being, they're not based on those things. Like that, you know, Evie's best friend, as I said, is a single parent. He's actually a single dad. My best friend is a single dad, but it's, it's not that relationship is not our relationship. It didn't go the same way. It doesn't have the same dynamics. Um, it's just, you know, so I think you're always, it's often, you know, they're often little bits, but you know, nothing in particular. And I would say the same thing about the, uh, about the new book. It's, it's, you know, there are things that your own interest in, you know, I've been single a long time and <clears throat> lived by myself and I like living by myself. And one of the things that comes up in the book is sort of the, the idea of enjoying your, your, your independence and, and trying to figure out how that fits together with um, companionship and relationships with other people. So, yeah, I mean, influences, but not, not based on, but yeah. Do you think it was easier to write the first book or do you think it was easier to write the second book? And what caused you to want to write Baby Drake? Was it like, was it, yeah. So the first book, the first book I wrote over a really long period of time, a period of several years. And in that sense, it was um, harder because it took forever. And because I didn't know, as I mentioned before, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I didn't really know much about structuring or planning a novel. There was a lot that was completely new to me. In that sense, the second book was easier in the sense that I knew more about how to pace a story, things like that. However, um, once I had put out one book, putting out a second book was was very intimidating and difficult just mentally because once you have one book out there, it's very, when you're thinking about the second book, there's just this weird feeling of like, do I want to try to do a book that's kind of like the first book? Do I want to do a book that's totally different from the first book? And you feel like everything that you're trying to create in your mind is relative to that first book, as opposed to like, when I wrote Evie, it was like, no, you know, I didn't have any idea whether I could even finish a book and nobody knew whether I could write a book. And it was a completely clean slate, which in some cases is very low stress. So the second book was much harder as a process in terms of like to get myself to do it because I got very in my head about it. But the second one was easier in terms of I had a better idea of what I was doing. So they they kind of were just very different experiences. Um, has your uh, writing process changed at all from your life or has it stayed pretty I think it stayed pretty similar, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my habits are, I don't have a particularly regimented way of writing. I don't write at the same time every day. I don't write, I'm not that mm-hmm. kind of person. I don't write the same amount at a time. I know there are your mm-hmm. there are your writers who have those very much, you know, I get up and at nine o'clock in the morning, I write 1,216 words and I do that every single day. And that's how I finish a book. I am not that person. There are things I've learned about my writing process. I don't particularly, you know, I don't like to write 
really with um, too much noise in the background. I tend to write mm-hmm. in the quiet, so I don't really write to music very often anymore. I used to sometimes mm-hmm. try it, but usually I write in the quiet. Um, so you learn things about your habits, but my process has probably stayed pretty similar over time. Um, what is the best advice someone else has gave you about writing? And did you listen to the advice they gave you? best advice about writing and did I listen to the advice okay give me a second I hope I listened to it um let's see yeah I mean I think the best advice I've ever gotten which I've gotten at different times from a couple of different people so I can't remember who exactly to credit it to but a couple of different people gave me the advice particularly when I was working on the second book um Rather than obsessing over, um, you know, how the, how the book is going is every single word in it. Correct. Push it out of your head, get it onto the page and then go back and work on it because the editing of something is always easier than the, the creation of it from the outside. And I do take that advice. And I actually also use that advice. If I'm writing like a review of a movie and I don't know how to get started, you just kind of push in and you know, it's not that good. And you just kind of write it. And it's like, well, it's not going to be this, but you, you start something, you do something and you get it on the page and then you can go back and kind of, you know, fuss with it. And it's, it's much easier So I am a big fan of just get something out of your head, get it written, and then restructure, work on it. You may wind up changing practically the whole thing, but it's still easier than looking at the blank page. So since you like podcasting and stuff as well, is is there a medium that you prefer over the other between writing and podcasting, or do you think that uh, you like having the balance of both in your life? I love doing both. Um, I, I find, um, you know, because I run a, I work on a kind of a conversation podcast rather than a narrative podcast, it really focuses mm-hmm. on the, the value of really good conversations. And that's something I enjoy a great deal. So I'm very happy to be doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, if I only could do one thing or the other, I would probably write. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, I'm just that, I'm just that person. I, I, I think I am that person who will always want to be writing something. Um, so I, but I, I'm very fortunate to be able to do a variety of different things. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I, when I used to, as I mentioned, get to do more kind of live events, I love that too. I love sitting down and talking to people and interviewing people and having surprising things happen. And, um, so yeah, I, I love a bunch of different things, but probably writing would win a, um, you know, writing would win a, a, a smackdown between all the different things that I spend my time on. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. And we just have one more question. What is your favorite podcast? What is my favorite podcast? Typically my answer to this is that my favorite podcast is judge John Hodgman, which is a podcast where John Hodgman, who is a writer and a comedian and, um, you know, makes very funny television and, uh, he um, he hears disputes, real disputes between real people, um, and they're usually very low stakes kinds of disputes. He hears them, he talks to the people, interviews them, and then he issues a decision. So it'll be a decision on something like um, uh, my husband um, doesn't want me to doesn't want our family to get um, family shirts for our vacation. I want us to get family shirts. Should we get family shirts? And they'll all come in and give their arguments about why. And then he issues a decision. And 
I, for some reason, it is just my, it is my favorite go-to um, podcast. There's also a, um, there's also a uh, Melrose Place episode um, recap podcast that I, that I love that's called Again With This, which is run by the women who um, started television without pity where I used to write many years ago. They have a, they have a um, Melrose place podcast, which believe it or not is riveting. So yeah, I, I have a bunch that I love. Those are kind of two of the ones that aren't NPR. I mean, I, I love a lot of NPR podcasts as well, but. Okay. Thank you so much for being here, answering our questions. I look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it and and good luck to you and good luck to to everybody and it was great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Awesome, thank you.